We're in the heart of the book of Hebrews today. We're making our way through a lengthy discussion of the high priesthood of Jesus. Today's passage presents a pretty complex argument, which can be confusing. But if you find it confusing, you're in good company. Because remember, this is what the author of Hebrews calls solid food. And if we want to mature and to persevere in clinging to Jesus, we've got to develop a taste for it. In chapter 5, the author of Hebrews twice mentions the name Melchizedek. Jesus has been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. However, up until now, there has been no further discussion of this order of Melchizedek. And that's a bit strange because Melchizedek is a relatively obscure character in the Bible. The name Melchizedek is not like Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon, such that you can just drop the name and everyone knows what you're talking about. In fact, outside of the book of Hebrews, the name Melchizedek is only mentioned two other times in the entire Bible. Melchizedek gets a measly three verses back in the book of Genesis, and then he's mentioned in passing in Psalm 110. That's it. Four verses out of about 31,000. That's pretty obscure. But in the Bible, obscurity is no obstacle. In fact, God does some of his best work through obscure people and places. And that is good news for ordinary people like us. But of course, God also works through rich and powerful people. People like Abraham. Last week in chapter 6 verse 12, the author of Hebrews charged us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the chief example of this sort of faith and patience, aside from Jesus is Abraham. Abraham had no children, but God had promised to make him the father of a multitude. And through faith and patience, Abraham ultimately inherited that promise. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. From the story of Abraham, we learn that the promises of God are for those who wait patiently and faithfully. But we also learn from the story of Abraham something about the trustworthiness of God. Verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And this divine oath, this guarantee of the promise provides, quote, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, so, so what is the hope set before us? What promise are we supposed to be clinging to? We're told in verses 19 and 20. 
The hope set before us is the Melchizedekian ministry of Jesus. Our hope is in the high priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Recall from a couple weeks ago, chapters 4 and 5, that Jesus has ascended into heaven as our great high priest. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was, there was a curtain or a veil symbolizing the threshold between heaven and earth. Well, Jesus, as our high priest, has passed through that curtain. Jesus has entered into the throne room of God and he's ministering there as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the imagery of an anchor is striking here. Jesus has ascended into the heavens like an anchor descends into the depths of the sea. This is not your typical anchor. Jesus is not the sort of anchor that drops into the ocean. Jesus is the sort of anchor that rises into the heavens. Consider the qualities of a good anchor. Anchors are strong. Anchors hold firm. Anchors are held by unbreakable chains. So long as we have a great high priest in the heavenly places, we have hope. And because Jesus will eternally be our great high priest in the heavenly places, we have an eternal, unbreakable hope. In the words of an old hymn, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. The storms of life may toss us, We may be battered and beaten by life in this world, but nothing, nothing will be able to break the chain connecting us to Jesus, our heavenly anchor. Because the chain connecting us to Jesus is the unbreakable promise of God, the promise he guaranteed with an oath. Christian hope is not mere optimism. Christian faith is not the vague sense that things will probably, hopefully, maybe be okay in the end. We are attached to an immovable anchor by an unbreakable chain. Our hope is truly sure and steadfast. And with that, we've come at last to chapter 7 and an actual discussion of Melchizedek. What is it about the order of Melchizedek that makes the priesthood of Jesus such good news? What is it about the order of Melchizedek that gives us this unbreakable hope? Keep in mind, the original audience would have been facing criticism 
from Jewish friends and family who were still clinging to the old ways. It's, it's not hard to imagine a first century Jew criticizing the idea that Jesus could offer sacrifice for sin. After all, he wasn't even from the tribe of Levi or the line of Aaron. So how could you call him a priest at all, much less a great high priest? That's a good question, says the author of Hebrews. Allow me to explain. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is, this is hundreds of years before the institution of Israel's priesthood. Hundreds of years before the giving of the law. Okay? Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is referring to Genesis 14, which we read earlier. In Genesis 14, this mysterious character named Melchizedek comes to Abraham with bread and wine. And we are told that Melchizedek was, was both king of Jerusalem and priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek was a king priest or a priest king. And that is a key part of what makes Melchizedek so unique. Throughout the Old Testament, there are priests in Jerusalem and there are kings in Jerusalem. But there are no priest kings. The priests come from the tribe of Levi and the kings come from the tribe of Judah. And so when Psalm 110 says that the coming Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it's saying that the coming Messiah will be a priest king. Both priest and king. But that's not all. Verse 2. Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness... And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 2 translates the name and title of Melchizedek. He is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And then verse 3 speaks to the fact that the book of Genesis doesn't bother to offer a genealogy for Melchizedek. Of course, Melchizedek did have a father and mother, but, but in the Bible, and in the book of Genesis especially, it's very rare to encounter a key character with no genealogy. The rest of the Bible teaches us to expect to be told where a person comes from. But we're told very little about Melchizedek. And the implication, according to the author of Hebrews, is that the priesthood of Melchizedek has no identifiable beginning or end. The legitimacy of his priesthood does not depend upon his genealogy. 
It's as though, in a literary sense, the priesthood of Melchizedek stands as a permanent fixture, an eternal priesthood. And of course, the the whole point of talking about Melchizedek as it concerns the book of Hebrews is to establish the legitimacy of the high priesthood of Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus does not depend upon being born within the tribe of Levi or the line of Aaron because Melchizedek was a priest long before Levi was even born. So, like Melchizedek, Jesus is a priest apart from the Levitical law. He belongs to an altogether different type of priesthood. Thus, we no longer need the Levitical priesthood because Jesus has revived an even greater priesthood, a priesthood that both predates and postdates the Levitical priesthood. And, and that's where the argument turns in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In short, the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and the fact that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek together demonstrate that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Levi, as one of Abraham's great-grandchildren, was also inferior to Melchizedek. Thus, the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Levi. The Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And because Jesus belongs to the Melchizedekian priesthood, he too is far superior to the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of of Jesus has rendered the Levitical system redundant. And so there's no turning back. We must cling to this great high priest. We must not abandon Jesus. There is no other anchor for our souls. Now, I I have to admit, it feels a bit strange to start talking about tithing at this point. Uh, But that's where the scriptures go. And so that's where we're going to go. We're still comparing and contrasting the priesthood of Levi to the priesthood of Melchizedek and and then by extension, Jesus. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, Levi, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, Melchizedek or Jesus. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That may sound like a strange argument to us, but nevertheless, there it is. We've already seen that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Levi, so, so I won't belabor that point. But I do want us to take note of the logic here, because it applies to us. The Hebrew word for tithe simply means 10%. When you see the word tithe, it means 10%. So the Levitical priests collected 10% from the people. But even the Levitical priests, through Abraham, gave 10% to Melchizedek. This means that tithing did not begin with the giving of the law. The law, which came hundreds of years later, simply ratified a foundational principle that predated it. The biblical tithe predates the law. The tithe is not just an administrative detail within the law of Moses. The tithe is grounded in the way things are, grounded in the way things ought to be. Thus, we we cannot evade the biblical tithe by saying that we're no longer under the law. We cannot avoid giving 10% of our income to the church by saying that Jesus has done away with the Levitical system. Actually, because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he is even more worthy of our 10%. To give less to Jesus is to say with your wallet that Jesus is worthy of less honor than the Israelites showed to the priesthood and less honor than Abraham showed to Melchizedek. If the order of Melchizedek both predates and postdates the order of Levi, then tithing both predates and postdates the law. Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abraham. Many Christians today want the blessing of Jesus without having to give a tithe to Jesus. We don't mind when Jesus demonstrates his greatness by blessing us, but we do mind having to declare his greatness with our money. And by the way, notice notice where Abraham's tithe goes. According to Genesis 14, we tithe to the entity that feeds us bread and wine. That's the local church. But tithing is not the main point of this passage. And so I'm not going to close the sermon on that note. The main point is that Jesus, as a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, has entered into the heavenly places. He has done what no priest before him could do. He has atoned for your sins once and for all and forever. And so, you have him. You have him. You have him as a, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You, 
brothers and sisters, are attached to an immovable anchor by an unbreakable chain. He is a forever priest. And so you have a forever salvation. You have a forever hope. As sure as God is God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for designating for us a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. Jesus, king and priest, you have anchored our hope within the heavenly places. We praise you for your faithful ministry on our behalf. Holy Spirit, help us to cling to the hope that we have in Jesus, steadfast and sure as the billows roll. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.